I want to come back again today to Psalm 105. One of the historical psalms that reviews Israel's history, redemptive history. I want to begin at verse 25. Last time we were together, we were considering Joseph in Egypt and how in the providence of God he was able to be the deliverer of the people, preparing the way for their time in Egypt. During that first part of their sojourn in Egypt, it was a very favorable time, and Israel increased. But that picks it up then at verse 25. He that is God turned their heart, that is the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood, slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their king. He spake and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice and all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also in their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake and the locusts came and caterpillars and that without number. And he did eat up all their herbs in the land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for their fear of them fell upon them. We'll end our reading at verse 38. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come now into thy presence once more with our Bibles open as we consider, Lord, these great events that thou did manipulate and control and orchestrate for the purpose of thy glory and for the redemption of thy people. And if we consider these matters before us today, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight that what we discuss will help us even appreciate more the power of God and the purpose of God in the redeeming of his people. So hear our prayers and help us now in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in, Joe. All right, we're considering again today something of the world of the Bible, and we're spending a little time here dealing with the time of Israel's sojourn in the land of Egypt. And this certainly, as we come now to consider something of the Exodus event, 
from a redemptive purpose, there is no question that what happened in the Exodus is the most significant event in Old Testament history. It becomes a paradigm. What we see in the Exodus becomes a paradigm that is a pattern uh, of the way God delivers his people spiritually. And there are profound spiritual lessons that emphasize the power of God, that emphasize the purpose of God, uh, and the love of God in delivering his people from that place of bondage. Now, as we consider this framework then of the Exodus event, there's no question that at this time, there was no more powerful nation on the face of God's earth than Egypt. Uh, they were a long history by the time Israel gets there, as we think we've addressed already. I think you still have that little handout perhaps I gave on the, on, on the history of Egypt. You can refer to that. Uh, but we're going to be talking today particularly about some of the events of the Exodus. By the time we come to uh, the Exodus, we're in what was known as the New Empire. And this was the heyday of really Egyptian power, Egyptian majesty, what have you. I think I identified for you last time that when Jacob's large family entered into Egypt because of the famine, remember, uh, that they received favorable treatment. We know from the, the Lord's words to Abraham that his seed was going to be in Egypt for 400 some years. But those 400 years were not all bondage. Uh, many of those years in the beginning uh, were very favorable. And it was during this time that uh, the Israelites began to expand. They went down as 70 people. They went down just as 70 souls, remember. Uh, and by the time we turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, we now have a people that's in the millions. Uh, and the Lord prospered them. And it was because of that growing number that that king that knew not Joseph arose uh, that initiated then the time of the persecution, the time of the oppression, the bondage from which they were going to be uh, delivered. That was a foreign power. I identified those for you as the Hyksos. Uh, those were a Semitic people that had infiltrated and uh, in a time of weakness in Egyptian uh, government, they were able to usurp the power uh, and they became concerned because here Israel, another Semitic people uh, were even more numerous than they, and so they initiated, this foreign element initiated uh, the time of the persecution, the time of bondage, slavery uh, for Egypt. But then the Hyksos were expelled, uh, and we have now the 18th dynasty of Egypt coming into power. Uh, they expelled the Hyksos, but there's still now, because of that, there's an anti-Semitism uh, that was in Egypt. And so even though the Egyptians themselves did not begin the oppression, they continued it and it became more intense uh, because now of the fear of anything that was, uh, that was Semitic. And so the persecution continues. And it was during then the time of Thutmose III. This is where we left off last time I was with you. Thutmose III is the pharaoh that I would identify as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now his name is not given to us. I'm suggesting that Thutmose III is the Pharaoh of the Exodus because of 1 Kings chapter 
6 and verse 1. Remember, that's the verse that tells us that the Exodus occurred 480 years prior to that time of Solomon. And that puts us then in the middle of the 15th century, 1446. And we know then from Egyptian chronology that the Pharaoh at that time was Tutmosis III, the most powerful king the most powerful king of the new empire, the most powerful king of uh, the 18th dynasty. Uh, he had made inroads into Palestine. Uh, he was a great military uh, force and took his armies into Palestine in the land of Canaan and they established various uh, military outposts, most likely even. Uh, the last part of the, the slavery uh, of Egypt was built, or, or, or of Israel in Egypt was building uh, these outpost cities, right? The Bible identifies those for us. They were building Python and Ramesses, remember? Uh, and these were most likely uh, depot cities, if there was such a thing, uh, where goods would be supplied and, and stored and armaments and whatever, so that right on the border of, of Canaan. Uh, and I say there was no more powerful king uh, than the Third. And it's significant then that it is when Egypt is at its height uh, that God now comes in his providence to demonstrate that he is the king of kings. And the Tutmos III was nothing uh, as far as the Lord was concerned. So we have then the whole series uh, of events. Remember when Moses was called there at the burning bush, uh, you're going to go in and you're going to tell this Pharaoh uh, that God says, let my people go, that Jehovah says, yeah, let my people go. And the Lord, told, the Lord told Moses now, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that he's going to let the people go and you're going to come and worship me right here at this very, at this very spot uh, where, the, where the tree was, the burning bush. Uh, but the Lord said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to go into Pharaoh. And you're going to say, Jehovah says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going to say, no, but don't worry. I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to demonstrate to Pharaoh. They don't know me, but something is going to happen that the Egyptians are going to know that I am the one true and living God. And you know, you know the story. Uh, as Moses goes and Pharaoh rejects, just as God said he was going to reject, and God hardens his heart, and Pharaoh's hardens his own heart, and his heart is hard. Uh, he's stubborn, he's resistant. Uh, and so step by step, God uh, is going to demonstrate, God is going to demonstrate that he is the one who is absolutely supreme. And so we have those 10 plagues. What I just read for you in Psalm 105 uh, gives a history here of uh, of those plagues, if you will, that God uh, brought against the Egyptians, teaching them, and on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, giving them opportunities to repent, right? Opportunities to repent, but they hardened their heart, they hardened their heart, and ultimately, uh, ultimately, we have that final plague, the death of, uh, the death of the firstborn. And now it's interesting, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord says, I'm going to do this uh, and I'm going to execute judgment against even the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians had gods for everything. Everything had its deity correspondence. Uh, 
you, you've seen perhaps pictures on, of e Egyptian drawings and whatever, and all of these strange looking creatures. Uh, they, they had gods for everything, a god for the Nile, a god for bugs, a god for this, a god for that. And in essence, every one of those plagues, I'm I, I not gonna take the time this morning to you know, go through each of those, but in essence, every one of those plagues uh, was an affront, a demonstration against one of the gods of Egypt. Uh, there's the god of the Nile. Supplied all the fish and what, but the first plague was turn that water into blood. God is the one uh, that had the power over the Nile, not this, not this god. Uh, and, and on it goes. There, even the frogs, even the frogs. There was a, there was a goddess who represent, was represented as a frog. She was the goddess of fertility. Uh, and well, yeah, so here's the Lord showing that he has power even uh, over, over the frogs. And, and on it goes right on down the line uh, until, finally, until finally we have uh, that climactic uh, plague of the, of the uh, death of the firstborn. And even in, in that light, let me, let me read this verse here in, in chapter 11 of Exodus, verse 7. The Lord says what he's going to do here. He says, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians uh, and Israel. And remember how the plagues work, right? Some affected the entire land, others, uh, Egypt was in darkness, but there was light for the Israelites and so forth. There's a, a difference that was put. And he says, not even a dog, not even a dog is going to move his tongue against you. That's kind of a strange expression. Uh, what do we care about a dog moving his tongue against, uh, against Israel? But if you put this within the framework of what we know again about the Egyptian deities and all these Egyptian gods, the god of death, the god of death and embalming uh, was a god by the name of, see if I can remember, uh, Anubis, all right? God by the name of Anubis. And Anubis was always pictured. And maybe you've seen this in, you know, whatever, you ever seen any Egyptian stuff. Here's this character with, with a dog head, right? With a dog head, you've seen pictures maybe like that? Here's this guy with a dog head uh, that was the god of death and the god, god of embalming. Uh, who had control over all of this realm. And I think we have an allusion to that here. Not talking about some stray dog that's not gonna pant at you, but even this Egyptian God, right, cannot withstand, cannot withstand what the Lord is, is, going, uh, is going to do. So here are all of these plagues. And I say, if you ever had occasion to, I wrote a book here not too long ago on, on the theology of Exodus. Uh, and I've got a section there where I, I go through the plagues and, and demonstrate how each of these relate to a particular Egyptian god. So if you want to take a look at that, you can see that sometime. Uh, but it's a demonstration. It's a demonstration. These were just not capricious and, and just uh, things that were done whimsical. But by God's design, uh, every one of these was against some aspect of Egyptian theology. Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know this God of yours. Well, the Lord says, you're going to know who I am uh, wh when this thing is over. And step by step and movement by movement. And, and I say, when you look at these plagues, certainly they become more severe, but many of them at the, at the first were, were more annoyances 
you know, it's almost comical, right? Here come all these frogs. Here come all these frogs, God of fertility. Uh, and here these frogs are just taking over every place. And, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, I, I can get rid of these. I can get rid of these. And Pharaoh says what? Eh, let's do it tomorrow, all right? Let's do it tomorrow. Uh, why, why does he do that, all right? Who knows? But there's the hardness of the heart. Uh, but he could live with the frogs apparently for at least one more one more day. But God, step by step, giving them a chance to repent. The long-suffering of God, and many of those plays were just the long-suffering of God to bring them to repentance, to bring them to that knowledge of who he was. But the heart was hardened, and here comes that final plague of the death of the firstborn. So they leave, all right, they leave Egypt, and uh, we, we know the story, right? They're not long out of Egypt before they come to the Red Sea, and they seem to be hemmed in. <coughs> Pharaoh changed his mind, and now the chariots of Pharaoh's army, and again, these were the most uh, advanced armaments that existed in here in Israel. They're, they're bricklayers, but they know nothing about military. They have no military weaponry. They have no skill. They have no experience in warfare. And now here comes these, uh, the, these trained warriors behind them. Uh, see the dust of the chariots coming. There's hills on either side. Now there's the water of the Red Sea before them. What to do? Well, again, God demonstrates. Uh, his power and the Red Sea is opened and they, they go through uh, that, that water and then the Egyptians think they can do it too and God brings the waters upon them and, 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 and the army of Pharaoh is decimated. So, and again, this is the most powerful army on the face of God's earth at this time. Uh, there's stuff going on in Mesopotamia, but there's nothing more powerful than Egypt at this time. Uh, and the strongest army just completely annihilated. Now this brings us to another interesting feature as we look at the world then of the, uh, of, of the Bible as, as, they leave, as, as they leave Egypt. Now they're going to go into the, ultimately to the land of, to the land of Canaan. You know the disobedience, right, in, uh, of their unbelief. God had said, I'm gonna give you this land that's flowing with milk and honey. Uh, it's a prosperous land. Uh, it's a beautiful land. They send the spies in. They send the spies in, and the spies come back, and they say, yeah, it, it, it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. The, it, you, you won't believe it's every It's everything God said it was. And they brought back that great cluster of grapes, remember? And they, 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 they looked at those grapes, and there was no grapes like them. No grapes like them, and they admired those grapes. Uh, and they examined those grapes. This land is everything God said it was, but, but there's also cities there that have walls that are to the heaven, and we, we just can't do it. We can't do it. Um, they saw the blessing. They saw the prosperity. They saw the grapes, but they wouldn't possess it themselves. I'm sort of tempted here to digress and make an application. May I do that, please? I'm going to make an application for this. I think that somehow, sometimes, uh, how, how we reformed people uh, view doctrine, all right? Uh, we pride ourselves about the greatness of the doctrine, and 
to use the analogy, we, we love to look at the grapes, right? We love to look at the grapes of truth. Here's the grapes of the sovereignty of God. Here's the grapes of the atonement. Here's the grape. And we admire those grapes. We look at those grapes from every other side. But, but can we really come into the experience and the enjoyment? We love to talk about them. We love to look at them, examine them. So let's not be like those spies, all right? Let's not be like Israel at that time who loved to look at the stuff, who loved to examine the grapes and, and you know, we can pride ourselves on how much about those grapes we know. But do we come into the full experience? Uh, do we bring in the enjoyment? All right, that part of my digression is over. All right, but, but that, that's, it's, it's a beautiful picture there uh, of, I think, somehow, sometimes how we handle the truth. So you know what happened, right? So they wander around in the desert for 40, for 40 years. And going in circles, going in circles, uh, but learning lessons. Learning lessons every step of the way. Uh, gospel lessons. Uh, the tabernacle was given during this time, and all the gospel lessons concerning the ceremony of the sacrifices, all of that was being taught to the people. So the, the wilderness was not wasted time. The wilderness was not wasted time. Uh, but it was there because of their ultimate disobedience. But finally, those wanderings are over. Let me just say this, by the way, as well. Critics. Critics will often impugn the historicity of the scriptures because they can't figure out how stuff happened. Here's a people now, probably, you know, we're pushing, we're pushing six million people uh, that came out of Egypt uh, at the Exodus. And now they're wandering around for 40 years in this relatively small space. And the critics say, ah, this could never have happened. The critic, th this could never have happened because that land couldn't support uh, that many people for that long. So it never happened. Well, what do we say? Yeah, read your Bible, people. Uh, we know it couldn't support them. That's why God gave manna every day for 40 years. That's why God gave them the water. So there was miraculous stuff happening. But the critic, they, they deny the supernatural, of course. All right? Uh, they deny the supernatural. But God... So what does Israel come from? I, I don't want to waste your time with all this, but the critics un understand Israel, right, just as a bunch of little isolated groups of people, uh, some from here, some from there. They met up, oh, you kind of look like me, and so they just kind of gathered together and uh, be became Israel, uh, denying the whole issue of the Exodus and whatever else uh, because they can't understand what the Bible is saying. But we know what the Bible is saying is true, right, regardless of what secular history might indicate. But my point is they finally, at, at the end of the 40 years, they enter into the land, they enter into the land of Canaan. Uh, and first thing they come across is Jericho. And you remember how the city of Jericho fell. Now, one of the things that we learn from some of the, the data I don't know if I mentioned these already. There's, there's a cache of material, cache of cuneiform tablets uh, that we call the Armana tablets. Have I said about that, the Armana tablets? Uh, the Armana tablets. Armana was a, another city in Egypt. City in Egypt, the capital there. After the exodus, the, the, the new empire had some problems. Uh, they had a rebellion. The capital was moved from Thebes to Armana. 
the chief god was changed from uh, from Amun to uh, Anakin, and a lot of lot of upheaval that that changed. Tutankhamun, you've heard of Tutankhamun, right? King Tut, yeah, he comes from that particular uh, that particular period. But Armana became this capital, and so in, in Armana, there was all, this whole cache of cuneiform Akkadian texts were written from Palestinian cities, dating now to the time of Joshua's conquest. Forty years have passed, uh, and now entering into the land, and we learn from these Armana tablets uh, something about the political structure uh, of Canaan, of Palestine during this time. It consisted of a whole bunch of independent city-states. There was no one country. There was no one people uh, in the land of Canaan. And, and Moses told the people, you're going to enter into this land. It's going to be filled with uh, Hittites and Hivites and Girgashites and Jebusites and list all these nations, seven of them greater and mightier than you are. Uh, all of these nations, independent one from the other, uh, constituted the population of, of Israel, uh, of Palestine. All of these independent city-states had no ties one with the other. They were constantly fighting among themselves as to where their territories were going to be, uh, constantly battling themselves. What happened to one would not happen to another. Uh, so here again is, is, is how God worked. Uh, they come across, here's Jericho. Here's Jericho. And how, how does Jericho fall? God tells, tells Joshua, I want you to get, get, get your people, take the Ark of the Covenant. You march around that city once every seven days. Seven days, you march around seven times, blow your horn, and watch the walls come tumbling down. Uh, and you, you march everyone straight ahead, and you, you get the victory. Uh, that was miraculous, all right? That was miraculous. But that's the only city that fell that way, right? Uh, all the other, it was going to involve battles and conflicts, and, but what happened? What happened? Here are these fortified cities. Uh, that was their major defensive mechanism, and they were proud of these. And this, they, it, 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 was, it was their pride and joy, if you will, and that's what intimidated the spies those earlier years. These are cities that have walls that are going up to the heavens. Uh, massive defensive mechanisms. And the only way, the typical matter of warfare at that time uh, against these cities was to lay siege. You would lay siege, you surround this city, you keep people from going out uh, to get supplies, you keep supplies from going, and you starve them out basically. But that would take years sometimes. Uh, that's how the Babylonians ultimately got Jerusalem back in, in, the, sixth, in the sixth century. They laid siege, but it was, it was a year uh, that, Israel, that Jerusalem was laid siege by the Babylonians. The conquest, all right, now, first thing, in seven days, just by march, no, no battle, no, no, you just blow your horn, watch the walls come, and they go in and they destroy the city, save for Rahab. Now that word began to spread. That word began to spread. These cities don't mean anything. These walls don't mean anything to these people. And they talk about, in these Armana letters, they talk about a people called the Habiru, a people called the Habiru now that are coming into our land and they are devastating our land. They're, they're ransacking everything they're, and, and they're asking Egypt for help. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But let's come back to Jericho. Jericho fell just by the circling around it and the word spread. The word spread. And so what happens now? What happens now is these independent city-states that had no relationship one to the other. 
uh, that fought against themselves all the time. Now they say, our cities don't mean anything. And so they come out of their cities and they ally themselves together to come against Israel now as a collective force outside of their cities. My guess is when Joshua and the rest of Israel heard about these nations that are coming out of their cities and now collectively going to fight against us, that had to be a scary thing. These were people, again, that were well experienced in warfare. Israel, not so. But now all of these, all these nations coming out, all these nations coming out, and at one time, in one battle, in one battle, they defeat all of these uh, peoples. Now, it took a miracle, right? God sent the hail, and we have now Joshua's long day uh, where the sun and the moon stood still. Uh, but all these people now coming out, and in one battle, they were able to be defeated. And when you put that within the context of what we know uh, about the political structure uh, of, of Canaan at that time, a remarkable thing. And who put it in? put it in their heart. It was God that manipulated them to come out now together uh, and fight in this one battle. And so all, in one battle, now all of these cities, how many there ever were in that particular uh, contest? Five kings, six kings, whatever it was. Uh, all their cities now belong to, to Israel. Remarkable. Remarkable demonstration. But I'm saying that these are mono letters that have the people called the Habiru. Uh, that are coming into our land, and they're asking Egypt, you told us, right, when you came in and set these cities that you would support us, you know, kind of like a NATO agreement. Uh, and, and now we, we have, we, there's the people here, these Habiru people, and they're taking our territory, they're ransacking everything. We need your help. We need your help. Send aid. Send aid. But, of course, Egypt doesn't send any aid because their armies, right? Remember what happened to their armies not too long ago. Uh, they were destroyed, and Egypt did not have the wherewithal uh, to help uh, those cities. So it's interesting in, in these Armana letters, we have, a, we have a picture, a narration of the conquest, Joshua's conquest, from the perspective of the Canaanites. Uh, and it's really quite remarkable. Well, time is gone. Uh, this is interesting stuff. It's interesting, it, it, so long as you have a low threshold of interest, right? It's interesting stuff. No, it, it's good. And it puts, it, I hope it puts the Bible uh, in, in the real world for us, right? This is not just some theology book that just dropped out of heaven. It, real people at a real time, and as we see that, then it, it, it reminds us that there's going to be a relevance for us in our day, in our time uh, as well. So we'll come back to this whenever we can. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we give thanks again for who thou art and for thy power and thy might and that thou art the king of the universe, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And even in these historic events that we can read, we can understand, but to, to, to put it within the framework of that real world sometimes give us uh, some illumination as to why you did uh, what, uh, what was done. So, Lord, let us have increased confidence and assurance that thou art indeed the God of heaven and earth. So bless this time. Again, we give our thanks for what we've heard today from thy word, reminding us of uh, that amazing sacrifice of Christ for us, his people. Lord, let us not lose sight of that. 
but help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.